minds that if we could own the press, then we would own the minds of the consumer because they would always believe what the media said about us. They would never believe our marketing or advertising. And if we could be the leaders in every market in the media, none of our competitors would ever get a toehold because we'd always be mentioned even in the articles that were about them. I first heard about today's guest, Cameron Harold, years ago when I was listening to a podcast called How I Built This by Guy Raz. It's an amazing podcast if you have not listened to it. And Cameron is um, quite the businessman. So by the time he was 21, he had 14 employees. By the time he was 35, he helped build his first, not one, but two $100 million companies. Again, by the time he was 35. By the time he was 42, he helped build 1-800-GOT-JUNK from $2 million to $106 million in revenue, and he did that in just six years. He's going to talk a little bit about that on this podcast. He's going to mention his multiple best-selling books, and then he's going to talk about how he learned to do PR on his own. And he is like totally speaking my language here. His companies have landed over 5,200 media placements in just six years, including coverage on Oprah, the place everybody wants to be. Whenever I ask clients or potential clients where do they want to be, Oprah always comes up. He is also helping um, people become amazing COOs on his podcast, Second in Command, and through um, COO Alliance for the bigger business owners that are doing at least $5 million in revenue. But I do suggest you listen to his podcast if you're not there yet, Second in Command. He's the only person talking about the COO. There's a big difference between a CEO and a COO, and we get into that also in this episode of Become a Media Maven. Ever wonder how some people seem to get a ton of media coverage and you don't? Welcome to Become a Media Maven, where TV reporter, host, and news contributor Christina Nicholson shares years of media experience to help you get the media attention you and your business deserve. And now, to help you master your media coverage, Christina Nicholson. Cameron, thank you so much for joining me on the Become a Media Maven podcast. Christina, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so excited to have you. I was actually chatting, oh my gosh, this is probably well over a year ago now, chatting with my friend Azul, and I was listening, I believe I was listening to the How I Built This podcast when I heard the story about 1-800-GOT-JUNK and how Mm -hmm. one... Um, I believe it was a feature in Fortune magazine, how one feature in Fortune magazine like blew up the business. And then I was talking to Azul about it and he was like, hey, I know a guy named Cameron Harold who you should talk to about this. And then that's how he made the introduction. So am I right? Was it the How I Built This podcast where I heard that story? Yeah, yeah. Brian, was the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, was on with Guy Raz. Guy and I hung out together at the TED conference two years ago. Um, and yeah, this, it was actually Fortune Small Business. It was the print edition of the magazine. And uh, Justin Martin was the, the journalist, the writer who came out and spent a full day with us and wrote a really strong two-page article uh, with photos about 1-800-GOT-JUNK and covered Brian and I really extensively in the article. Funny story, that article, um, that was in 2003 or 2004. Um, Simon Sinek heard about us through that article called me and asked if he could come for lunch. And I said, sure. And I said, uh, uh, 
uh, do you want directions? And he goes, no, no, I'm just, I'm coming from the airport. And I said, oh, where are you out of town? He said, no, I live in New York. And I said, well, you just said, said you're flying from New York or you're coming for lunch. He goes, yeah, I'm going to fly up from New York. I'll come for lunch and then I'll take the red eye back to New York. And I'm like, for real? And he goes, yeah, I just need to find out if you guys are a real company or not. So Simon Sinek, the, the, you know, the number three Ted talk of all time, that's how he and I met was he, and this was way before anyone in the world had heard of Simon. He and his business partner owned a three person ad agency. And, uh, he was four or five years before writing his book, start with why, but that, that article that Justin wrote, um, caught the attention of, um, the, the mass media. It caught the attention of Oprah. Um, it brought us into CNBC squawk box. And I think over a six and a half year period that I was the chief operating officer, we landed 5,200 individual unique stories about our company. So that was one of the tipping point stories for sure. And after that article, you guys got so busy, you had to like unplug the phones because they were literally ringing off the hook. Well, there's, there's some truth to that, but there's also some art behind that. So we understood what we called, I, I taught the company something called the reverse sell. The reverse sell is something I learned at a group called College Pro Painters where if you're selling a franchise, if you put turn on the pressure too hard, if you're too keen, if you're too energetic, you'll turn away the prospect. So what you want to do is get the prospect to be selling you the whole time on why they're good enough. So what we did in terms of unplugging the phone was we just created urgency. So we taught everyone in our franchise sales group to leave a message that said, hey, we've just been covered in the media this week. Sorry, we're really, really busy. Please leave your name and phone number and we'll call you right back. But that message was on the voicemail for years. So, yeah, we turned the phones off, but we did it very strategically, not truly because the media overwhelmed us. The second part of that story, though, is it did kind of overwhelm us. But we had a, um, a system in place called a no faster than number where we decided how fast we could possibly grow without breaking. Like what kind of quantum leap um, in terms of growth could we go without breaking? And at the time we were doing about four new franchises per month and we realized that the fastest we could do was 16 <clears throat> so we created systems to be able to interview recruit um, offer train and onboard 16 new franchises a month without breaking and so i think that that was probably the tipping point of us being able to really accelerate our growth as well okay do you think that's a problem that a lot of people have like that's a mistake is they just want to grow super fast that if maybe 16 is their capacity they'll try to do 25 and then it ends up hurting them in the long run yeah they don't they don't actually forecast you know cash so how is it going to drain your cash how is it going to drain your people um, what might it do to some of your internal resources you know we had a supplier who made so one eight hundred got junk is that company that you see driving around with the big blue and green trucks, right? And the, the big blue boxes on them, picking up junk from people's homes and businesses. And the blue trucks were all made in Alberta and shipped to franchisees. The trucks were all purchased from Toyota and Isuzu, or Isuzu and, uh, I think it was GM and Isuzu. Um, so we actually called them and said, hey, our forecast for next year is 365 new trucks. And the president of Isuzu said, holy shit, I'll be in your office in two days. He flew out to meet with us and said, we only have 280 trucks coming into the USA and you want to purchase 365. So it's because we understood our no faster than number and we could forecast things that we could give people a heads up and grow into that number. And I don't think a lot of companies understand what hyper growth is. Plus, you know, we were really very, very fast growing. You know, we did six consecutive years of 100% revenue growth. So I think a lot of people probably don't need to worry about things like a no faster than number because they'll never really get there. Uh, 
but when you're when you're doubling the size of your company, like we went from when I joined 14 employees, and when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system wide. That's pretty massive growth to engineer. So there's not a lot of companies that are going to have to worry about that number. But you are super lucky if you do have to worry about that number, and it's smart to have that number. That's awesome. Um, and how did you get into Fortune? Was this like your first go at publicity or is this something you went in knowing how to do? No, it was the second time that we'd been in Fortune. We had a small article written about two years before. Um, and that was about my third or fourth year with the company. Um, but I had been generating free PR for years for a number of different companies. And what I understood was every morning, every single journalist, every writer, every Nowadays, every podcaster, every blogger, every e-zine writer, uh, every TV journalist, they wake up thinking, what the heck am I going to cover today? And they're always looking for new stories. So your job isn't to call them up and say, hey, can you write about me? It's to call them up and say, hey, I think I have a good story for you. Do you have a couple of minutes? And then hand them a story that their listeners or their viewers or their readers will like, and you're actually doing them a favor. So that's what we understood. So Justin Martin was actually a cold call where we understood which media outlets we wanted to be covered in. Um, we figured out the types of stories they used to like to write, and we called them with two or three pre-canned story ideas and pitched them on it, and then we asked questions and listened. Okay, I am obsessed with what you just said because nobody gets this. And I would say probably about 90% of PR agencies also do not get this. And I'm speaking from the right. journalism side. Like, I was getting pitches all day, every day for 10 years as a TV reporter. And I preach to my audience, like, stop trying to promote yourself. It is not the media's job to give you a free no. commercial. And so many business right. owners do that. So many PR agencies do that. So how did you learn this? Well, again, I learned it at a group called College Pro Painters, which went on to be the, the world's largest house painting company. I hired Kimball Musk to work for me, Elon's brother, back in 1993. Um, so I, I just got trained at a very young age and I was pretty naive and grew up in a small city that I just thought, okay, this will work anywhere. And sure enough, it did. Um, when Brian and I met 14 years later, um, he was kind of cold calling with the media as well in a small way in Vancouver and he was getting some success with it. So when, you know, you, it was kind of like nitroglycerin when you took his little expertise in the Vancouver market and my expertise working it in multiple countries already. Um, and you kind of pour gas on that fire. It just lit up and we understood how to craft that story. And we really, I also understood in the very early days when I came into 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I came in with three core focuses in that first year. The first one was we had to, to um, really increase our revenue so that we could make money and our franchisees could make money. So we took our full load of a truck from $338 a full load to $458 a full load overnight. And everyone in the company was terrified. And I'm like, look, we're either going to go bankrupt because we don't make money or we're going to go bankrupt because we're charging too much. I'd rather try to charge too much and then deliver. And sure enough, it worked. Second thing was <clears throat> to turn the company into a cult and create a culture that was so strong we would become a magnet for great talent because we would always need really great employees to scale. And the third was to be the first in the media. And I said, if we could own the press, then we would own the minds of the consumer because they would always believe what the media said about us. They would never believe our marketing or advertising. And if we could be the leaders in every market in the media, none of our competitors would ever get a toehold because we'd always be mentioned even in the articles that were about them. So those were one of our three core focuses was getting publicity. I love that. And we just did it. You know? So we, we would pick up the phone and call journalists and we'd give them stories. And it, 
it evolved from in the first six months, me doing it, where I would do probably 10 hours a week as one of my core roles as the chief operating officer pitching the media. And then I hired a guy who worked for us in the trucks um, and taught him how to do PR. He'd never had any PR experience whatsoever. He went on to land about 600 stories about our company, including Oprah. He got us on the Oprah show. And then we finally built out the PR team to six full-time in-house PR people and a PR admin. And none of them had any PR experience. We would never hire anyone with a PR background. No, I am with you on that 100%. They they just want to write news wires and press releases and they don't get it. So what we hired was a lot. We actually loved women that were 25, 26 years old that loved to sell and would love to cold call and that were great on the phone. And they could pick up the phone and pound out calls all day and build connection with writers and then we taught them how the product was the story and how to sell that product. I love and that. Just scale. That's that's what the whole book Free PR is about. Yes, and you have not just one book; you have multiple books. Um, <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. But I, yeah. on my team, I do not hire PR people on my team. I I want people who work in the media, and it's really a natural transition of people who work as journalists to get into PR because for me. I had a a few kids and I got tired of sitting outside of a crime scene all day, every day, because if you watch the local news, especially in South Florida, for whatever reason, that is what gets the ratings. And I was like, okay, I'm done with this. And you just, you have such Mm -hmm. a different perspective when you actually come from a newsroom, you know what the morning meetings are like and what we talk about um, to determine what gets covered and how it gets covered. So I love, I love that you mentioned that. Um, But this wasn't your first business venture, correct? Like you've been at it no, no. for a while. Yeah, 1-800-GOT-JUNK was the fourth company that I'd helped scale really quickly. Um, so I built the, the largest chain of collision repair shops in North America. It was called Boyd Auto Body. In the U.S., it's called Gerber Auto Collision. Um, I built out the largest house painting company in the world. It was College Pro Painters. and I opened the West Coast of the United States for them. I think by the time I was 28, I had hired and trained 120 of their franchisees. Uh, so there's not a lot of 28-year-olds that had coached 120 entrepreneurs. Uh, and then I was also president of a private currency company that we built and sold, um, similar to what Bitcoin is doing. But we did it 20 years ago. We had Starwood Hotels and Bose Stereo and Avis Renicar all using our digital currency instead of the U.S. dollar. So I'd built a number of companies, got known for doing that, got known for building great cultures, Um, And then through all of those had leveraged free PR and then just took those kind of lessons into 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And for the first probably five or six years, five and a half, six years, it was really easy for me. Only in the last year did running that company get hard. And it was just because we got to be so big and it was just a much different company when you're, you know, dealing with 3000 employees system wide in four countries and 330 cities, just a lot of moving parts. I'm, I'm more in that entrepreneurial zone than the big corporate world. And how did it start like at the very beginning? Like you started super young. Did you, I mean, did you ever have a job or were you like straight from the get-go starting your own thing? Um, I, didn't, I did not have jobs for a long time, but I was always making money. So as a child, and I actually did a talk that's on the main TED.com website. If you go on to TED and, and just type in my name, you'll find a talk that I did 10 years ago called, it was about raising entrepreneurial kids. And um, I talk about probably 15 different business ventures I had by the time I was 16 years old. Uh, so I did everything from, you know, collecting coat hangers door to door and selling them to dry cleaners. And I, I made pin cushions and sold them door to door. And I um, picked up golf balls and repackaged them and sold them to golfers. And I had all these little side hustle businesses as a kid. 
And I think one of the things that I learned as a kid growing up was my parents were really smart. They would encourage me to do the business and then they would get the fuck out of the way and let me do it. And what drives me crazy now is you drive through any summer, you know, residential area and there's a little kid with a lemonade stand. And sure enough, mom or dad is standing right behind them waving for people to come over and buy lemonade. Like your kid's not doing anything like go run your own lemonade stand. So what my parents were really good at was they let me run the business. And then at night they would talk to me about what I learned and what I was struggling with and they would coach me through it and then let me go out and do it again the next day. And every day I would get better at it and learn and evolve. And I could give you a very strong business lesson that I learned from each of my entrepreneurial ventures as a child that I still use today. That's amazing. I'm going to link to that TED Talk in the show notes so people can take a look. And so after building multiple businesses, being successful with multiple Mm -hmm. businesses, is that when you decided, hey, maybe I should write some books about this? Yeah, after leaving uh, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I started coaching CEOs of real companies. The world's kind of littered with coaches right now. I coach um, companies, typically 50 to 500 employees. And I had a, a number of clients that were starting to do really well. And people kept wondering, why is it that every company you touch turned to gold? Can you teach us more? And my speakers bureaus that were getting me to do speaking events all over the world asked me to have a book. They said, you'd be able to raise your speaking fees. So I took all the ideas that I was coaching people on and tried to codify it in a way. And that book was called Double Double. And it was how to double your revenue and profit in three years or less. Um, and that was the impetus for kind of getting the first book out there. And then people wanted more. Uh, one of my coaching clients wanted more information on meetings, how to run them, how to attend them, how, to, how people should participate in them. He really wanted a, a, almost a manual for 100% of his employees to learn how to run meetings and attend them and participate in them. And so I wrote Meetings Suck as a way to codify that. Uh, Free PR was a book that Vern Harnish, the founder of Gazelles and Scaling Up, had always asked me to write and said that he would put me back on one of his stages as soon as the book Free PR came out because he wanted me to codify how to land more free publicity. Uh, Vivid Vision was a book that uh, was chapter one of Double Double. And again, people wanted more insights and more depth on how to craft this vivid vision for your business and your life and how to reverse engineer the future. Uh, and then the last one, I was approached by uh, Hal Elrod, who wrote The Miracle Morning. And he asked me if I would co-author The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs with him. So we co-authored that book three years ago. So those are the five books that I've got out currently. And I never set out to be a writer. I never would have. If you had asked me, um, and it's, in fact, it's kind of laughable now. If you had asked me when I was in high school if I was ever going to be a writer, my, my high school English teachers would have said there's no chance this kid will ever have a book. And all of my books have done extraordinarily well. That's amazing. I'm going to link to all of them in the show notes. And I want to ask, so sure. you, you do coach um, people in business. What would you say now? Like right now, we are in a bit of a situation because of the coronavirus that is affecting different businesses in different ways, whether you be brick mm-hmm. and mortar, whether you be online. What advice do you have today for business owners Um regarding how they should operate? I mean, what changes and what doesn't change? Well, I'll give, I'll give a bit of advice that is not going to help them now, but will help them the next time. And it's one that all of my clients have already benefited from. And that is to have strategic discussions, strategic thinking, not strategic. There's no such thing as strategic planning, but have strategic thinking discussions to talk about the what ifs a year out So that when they're happening, you already have a plan in place to execute before anyone else figures out what to do. 
So all of my coaching clients, the 18 CEOs that I coach, when all of a sudden the economic fallout started and the coronavirus started to hit, they were all sitting on cash. They were all had paid off their debt. We're all out there being buyers right now because we had planned in advance for this kind of a situation. Now, the hardest part, you know, the black swan is, you know, you have to shut down your business and you're going to lose 100% of your revenue. Okay, but how can you pivot? So what other things can you be selling, you know, if that happened? And, and again, those are strategic thinking discussions that most businesses don't have. They operate under this assumption that business will always be the way it's always going to be. I learned this back uh, years ago. I had a friend who started a company called Three Boys Houseboats, and the tax laws changed on him one night. And the next day, his business, which had about 2,000 employees, was effectively out of business because he didn't have a contingency plan. His entire business was built off of a tax law that had been in place for a decade. So I think it's about thinking strategically and thinking about what might we have to change if the situation's changed or what else could we sell to our current customers and suppliers? Because we have three resources, people, time, and money. The key is how do you get the highest input or output off those three, three resources? So the advice I would give people is to think about what else can you do with your people, time, and money to make money with your current clients or other clients or in the market you're in so that when the time comes, you can execute on some of those. Um, and I've seen some of my clients do that brilliantly. One of them does marketing only for gyms. So he only helps gyms and studios get more members. So all of his clients have effectively had to shut down. So Mike has already launched a course, has now already in the last week has thousands of paying customers of his course teaching gym owners how to run virtual gyms to people so they can still do their workouts from home during the whole social isolation. That's but that's somebody who was, but he was already prepared for that, right? He'd already done the thinking prior to needing to do it. So the, the problem with trying to think while everyone is panicked is you, you can't actually think clearly because you're so focused on the fear. So what, what ends up happening to most people right now, if they haven't done the strategy in advance is all they can focus on is cost cutting and cutting people and firing people and cost cutting because they didn't think about how they can leverage those resources. That's brilliant advice. I love it. I have, um, I've done a little bit about of that, but I also feel like, um, I read years ago, I read profit first and I feel like that has also been helpful. Um, I don't know if it's living below my means, but it's not being, I feel like today in the online space, um, it is very much a, let's call ourselves online business owners and pose in front of fancy cars or, um, in my backyard with my big pool and waterfall and people are kind of using their money more for show online and not really to live. And then when things like this happen, they're like, Oh crap, now I'm in a pickle. Yeah. Well, a lot of those people have never actually been through a downturn before. And we just went 12 years before since the last one. So the last downturn was 08, 09. Prior one was 2001. Um, and the prior one was 1987. So I've been through three. Um, but a lot of people who had, you know, if they're 30 years old, they were 18 the last time there was a downturn. So they're running around thinking the world is all perfect and this is going to be great. And they just got their ass handed to them. And there's something, there's a difference between being a business and being entrepreneurial. Both are fantastic, but being entrepreneurial means that you kind of do a job for lots of different clients. So let's say you're a freelance copywriter and you've got 10 different companies that you do freelance copywriting for. If you don't have teams of people working for you, you're not yet a business. 
And I think a lot of the solopreneurs or entrepreneurial people, which is great, have started to realize that they don't actually have a business. They really had something that was very dependent on themselves, um, which spreads the risk out because I think it's a lot less risky than working for one company and getting fired. But they don't necessarily understand in tough times how to actually replicate themselves or how to get more done with less people faster or how to expand some of their business in some ways. This will be a really good time for the strong people in that niche, though, because I think a lot of them will come out of this quite well. A lot of them will retool. Um, but it's, it's interesting watching the silence right now on social media where there's just not a lot of people out there showing. I actually had someone yesterday, she posted and said, we can't be online talking about how great things are for our business because other people are, are hurting right now. And I said, actually, bullshit. Um, you should be online talking about how great things are for your business and what you're doing that's going really well so that others can learn from that. Just don't do it with ego. Don't do it in a way that hurts other people. But if it was okay to talk two months ago about how great things were, it has to be okay now as well. People just have to be able to learn from that. And I just started getting all these high fives from people. I think that there's a there's a bit of a worry right now that it's kind of like everyone's supposed to get a participation ribbon. Entrepreneurship is not about participation ribbons. Entrepreneurship is about the highs and lows of CEOs. It's about this roller coaster that we ride. And the, the true strong ones are the ones that can get through the down periods and come out really, really strong. I agree. I agree because it definitely is a roller coaster ride. And you help people through all of this. I mean, in addition to your books, you have um, the podcast, Second in Command, but you also have COO Alliance. So talk to us a little bit about the podcast, what you teach on the podcast, who should listen to the podcast, and then you also work with a very specific set of people in COO Alliance. So loaded question, those two things, the podcast and um, the Alliance. It's interesting. It's a data point that goes back to Simon Sinek again, which is almost like the golden thread. But Simon asked me one night at dinner at my home, again, before his TED Talk came out, he said, why are you doing what you do? And Because I, I was starting to coach entrepreneurs. And I said, I love helping entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. And he went, holy shit, that's your core purpose. And I went, what? And he goes, that's your why. And we realized that the reason I loved coaching people, the reason I loved speaking, and now today the reason I love having my books and, and doing podcast interviews and running my CEO lines, everything is in, is consistent with helping the entrepreneur make their dream happen, right? Grow their company, grow their business. So um, everything I do points in that direction. So my second in command podcast, everyone interviews entrepreneurs. I want the rest of the story. And I thought about my mom and dad. If you asked my mom, how did you raise your kids? She would have a very true story about how she raised the family. And then if you ask my dad, and they were they were married and together my whole life, you know, how did you raise the kids? He would have a very true story. They'd be very different, but they'd both be very true perspectives of how the kids got raised. And I realized if you think about the CEO and the COO, that kind of yin and yang balance inside of a company, we were never getting the rest of the story. And so even on a lot of Guy Raz's interviews, I know a lot of the entrepreneurs on on how I built this. I also know a bunch of their COOs. And it's quite interesting to know the second perspective. So that was the whole reason for the second in command podcast was to gain some of those insights and lessons that will serve the entrepreneurial community really well. The CEO of Alliance um, is an organization that is only for second in command. You know, there's a lot of groups that CEOs or entrepreneurs can go to, right? We can go to summit, we can go to the entrepreneurs organization or YPO or Vistage or baby bathwater genius network, all these amazing groups for entrepreneurs And there's groups for marketers and lawyers and engineers and doctors, but there was never an organization that was exclusively for the second in command. 
So we started the CO Alliance as a network for second in commands of at least five million uh, in revenue or greater. And I put that bar in place because that's the number that I consider to be a real company. I think if you're less than five million, you're still at a you're an entrepreneurial person with an entrepreneurial drive, but you haven't yet turned it into maybe a business. Um, I think when you're at the maybe 30 employee mark, all of a sudden you're kind of like, oh shit, this is a real business. I got to start growing this sucker. I love that you focus on the COO because I know mine has given me so much sanity. Um, When I started Mm -hmm. making that change from freelancer to agency owner, before I brought her on, I was like, this is terrible. Why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. (laughs) I hate it. And then I brought her on and I'm like, oh my God. And she loves it. And I'm like, this is amazing. (laughs) We should scale. We should grow this thing because she literally is so much better at it than I would ever be. And it actually makes me enjoy my business and my life. Yep. I learned that lesson from my brother and his wife. So they they have a really fun relationship. They've been married for about uh, 20 years now, two kids, and they have what they call pink jobs and blue jobs in the home. And they're not the traditional pink job, blue job. It's not like mommy does laundry, daddy cuts the grass. It's There's a bunch of shit that gets done around the house that my brother does. So those are blue jobs. And there's a bunch of shit that gets done around the house that Jody does. Those are pink jobs. In fact, Jody may be cutting the grass and Todd might be cooking dinner. But they've just decided what the pink job and blue job is because they love doing them. And I'm like, ah, wow. Like in the business world, if the CEO loves to run engineering, go for it, man. Run it. If the CEO hates engineering, then hire a second command that loves engineering. And that's the, the, the real delicate art of, of hiring a true second in command, the true COO, is to hire someone who's that yin and yang balance to the CEO. The Second in Command podcast is really where we go deep into that whole um, that whole psyche. That's amazing. I love that. And do you actually? I mean, with the CEOs, I feel like you're the. Are you the only one doing this and focusing on the CEOs? I feel like this is not a common thing, but it is so necessary. Yeah, I'm the only one in the world who's ever really probably because I've been a COO three times. Um, and most people just think that it's, it's funny. I had a friend who's a CEO over for dinner last night and we were sitting ch- chatting. His second in command is in the CEO Alliance has been for three years and we were laughing and he said, is there really that big of a difference between me and my COO guy? And I'm like, dude, yeah. Like guy would want to talk to me about interviewing for like two to four hours. Would you? He goes, no, I wouldn't even want to talk about interviewing like at all. Mm-hmm. Like there's such a, there's such a difference between them, but I love the COO mindset and I also love that there's a, a, a group of people who really want to make their CEO iconic. You know, I loved mm-hmm. that I got to go to work every day and help Brian's dream come true. And that I got to make Brian the guy who was on How I Built This, which is why, you know, he mentioned me on How I Built This. He mentions me throughout his book. Uh, if you read WTF, Willing to Fail, my name is littered throughout that book because I was there to really be his kind of spotlight. And then inside the organization, he was my spotlight. We really had each other's back. I love that. And I have so much to link to in the show notes. Lots of books. Um, (laughs) No, it's good. It's a good thing. Lots of TED Talks, lots of things to link to in the show notes. So folks, make sure you check all of that out. Cameron, is there anything else that you would like to add that I should have asked or maybe you think is important to add, whether it be business related or business in the time of the coronavirus related? 
Yeah, I'll give I'll give one thing, and it's it's a story that I'll tell from 30 years ago, where Ronald Reagan, who was president of the U.S., was meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev, who was president of the Soviet Union, and they were sitting having their summit meeting and listening to each other over translation devices and trying to solve all the world's problems. And every couple hours, someone would come into the meeting ranting and raving and pissed off, and Gorbachev would laugh and he would smile and he would say, "Remember rule number six," and Reagan would hear, "Remember rule number six." He never heard what the guy was upset about. So at the end of the meeting, Reagan turned to Gorbachev and he said, you know, we've solved all the world's problems, but three times today you said, remember rule number six. He said, what, what is it? And Gorbachev laughed and he said, rule number six is don't take yourself so fucking seriously. And Reagan said, well, what are the first five rules? And Gorbachev said, there aren't any. And I think for me, that has always stuck as a reminder for everything, including the time that we're in. None of this actually matters. We're all just walking each other home. None of us are getting out of this alive. And this is just what we do to make money. So maybe if we could just chill out and relax and have some fun along the way. And remember, everybody in our team is struggling. All of our customers and employees are struggling. This is just like, yeah, we can have goals and drive hard in our business. But it's just what we do to make money. Because at the end of the day, we're all going to die. And none of this actually even mattered in the first place. That is such a good reminder, especially right now. Remember rule number six, people. Cameron, thank you so much for coming on. Christina, thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay, like I mentioned, there is a lot in the show notes, people, and I am linking to all of it for you because these are amazing resources, books, TED Talks, um, other podcasts to listen to, and CameronHerald.com. This man is a wealth of information and he loves sharing his expertise. So please make sure you check out the show notes. Make sure you tap that subscribe button to the Become a Media Maven podcast if you have not already. If you have not left me a rating or a review, I would also appreciate that. Thank you so much for stopping by and listening. We do this here every week. So I will see you again next week on the Become a Media Maven podcast.